Uh, if you're a visitor here, let me just orient you to what we're doing. Uh, we're in a preaching and teaching series that we're calling The Seven Mile Road. As undoubtedly you've noticed by now, that's the name of our church. And, and so our hope has been to start this year by sort of casting a vision for what we're hoping marks our community and what marks this church. Uh, what are the core identities and central values and, and truths that are going to shape the kind of church God is planting here? And so the Seven Mile Road story in Luke 24 is a big deal to us, and it's because our hope is that that story also becomes the story of our church. So over seven weeks, we're walking a mile each week. We've walked three miles so far together. Mile one, we talked about the idea that everything that happens in the story happens over the course of a road or a journey. And we said that that same metaphor describes the Christian life or Christian faith. At mile two, we considered the condition of these two disciples as they were walking the road. And we said that the Bible describes them as being people who are in need. And we said that the Bible describes us the same way. Last week, we walked mile three and we considered that Everything in the story was pointing to Jesus. And we talked about a vision of what it would look like for us as individuals and a community to do the same. Where this would be a people and a community and a place where it was all about Jesus. So today we're walking mile four. Today we're considering scripture and the central place that scripture has in the story and our hope that Scripture would have a central place in our community as well. So today we're strapping on hiking boots again, we're walking mile four, and we're considering Scripture and its place here in our community. Let me pray, and then we'll look at this together. Father, we do thank you that you have given to us revelation, that you have given to us your word. That you have not left us in the dark concerning truth, concerning reality, concerning you, but that you have left for us a witness, a testimony, so that we might truly know who you are, who we are, what you have done for us, and what we ought to do towards you. We thank you. We pray that you would bring to life a new affection for Jesus and show us that all the scriptures truly are about him and point to him. I pray that you would give us a new affection even for your word today, that we might see the Bible, see scripture with new eyes. We pray that all of that would draw us again to you, to your son. This is our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me say this. this I feel like what we are doing, just right off the bat, uh, over these weeks is we're sort of just scratching the surface. We're just sort of touching the tip of the iceberg. Right? The, the useless facts that you know about icebergs is that icebergs, what we see, are just 10%, right? So everyone knows that 90% of that massive thing, sometimes 100 to 200,000 tons, 90% of it is below the water. You don't even see it. And so if you're going to really mine the depths, you have much distance to go if you're going to reach the bottom. I feel like what we're doing in these weeks is we're just touching the surface. We're just considering the tip of the iceberg. Because each of these weeks, there's a ton of material to mine down and go deep if we're going to exhaustively consider it. Like it, when we were in mile one and we talked about journey or road, well, there's lots to talk through. Questions like, how does one come to know Christ over a journey? And, 
and, and more so, how does one become sanctified, the big Bible word? How, how does that process work? How is it over the course of a journey you and I look more and more like Christ and less and less like the old man? There's much to mine and much to dig there. Or when we consider need, we just sort of threw out these metaphors like that we're blind in our sin, that we're dead in our spiritual hearts. We even said that, that we're completely powerless to do anything about our condition. But again, you have much to mind if we're going to really talk about depravity and sin and our condition. Many of you in soul care just sort of started going there and questions like predestination came up and your group leader sort of got nervous and changed the subject and said, you know, Lost is coming on next week, right? So I know we have much to talk about in a lot of these places. That certainly is also the case in what we're talking about today, the scriptures. If we're honest, we have miles to mine when we talk about the scriptures. In fact, what we really need to do is spend a whole sermon series or teaching series just considering the nature of this book, of the scriptures. Why we would believe or love or obey or read or study or submit to this book. We'd need to exhaust it all. We'd need to talk about things like how we believe this book is inspired. So, so we'd need to unpack that, that. That we really believe that somehow this book is both simultaneously God's word and man's word. Just like the mystery of Jesus being both fully God and fully man, we really believe that God allowed certain men with their personalities, their writing styles, their grammatical situations, their context, their personalities to write everything they wanted to write. But that somehow God got involved with that process so that everything they wrote was exactly what God wanted them to write. Completely their words completely God's words. We'd have to talk through that. We'd have to talk through another word called inerrancy or infallibility. The idea that from cover to cover, we really believe that this book is true and trustworthy. That everything that is written in this book about God, about you, about the world, is true. That, that this book will never steer you wrong or lead you down a false path. That it tells the truth always from cover to cover. Every story, all of it, could be trusted. We'd have to talk through things like perspicuity, right? which is just a fancy word that smart people make to make themselves feel smarter. And, and ironically, that big word just means simple or clear, that the scriptures are clear and understandable, that this isn't a book that you need a PhD to have, to read, or, or riddles to sort of mine through, but that we really do teach them to babes, and we instruct our children from this book. And yet at the same time, simultaneously, it is deep enough that not even the most learned man will ever exhaust it or grasp all that can be grasped. That the scriptures are like a pool that is shallow enough for a baby to play in, but deep enough for an elephant to drown in at the same time. Both understandable and yet at the same time, beyond our wildest dreams of what is in here. We'd have much to talk about, right? We're not even touching any of those, let alone questions like, how did we get this book? 
And, and why these 66 books in this book? And why this book as opposed to other books? And how reliable were the books that we got? And who wrote those books? And you can see that the questions abound. So I, I'm saying all of that to say I recognize that there are much more, many more things to say about the scriptures than what is in our hope for today. Uh, all of those questions are beyond the scope of what we hope to cover for today. So I, I want you to know that as we talk through why we love the scriptures and what we believe about them here, you may have questions, good, honest, wrestling questions about the scriptures and its nature. Before we start talking about what we believe about this book and why we love it, you may have honest questions about why we would even bother listening to them. Why week after week we assemble in this room and for 30 or 40 minutes we talk through this book. You may have questions as to why it's anything more than the legends of some ancient dead men. So I want you to hear that I recognize those are good, honest questions. And we in community need to keep wrestling through them, even if we won't tackle everything that needs to be tackled today. What I will say is just a, a 20 second tangent, is, is if I could give you one bit of advice or suggestion, one plea from me to you would be, do be intentional about where you start with this book. Like, be thoughtful about where you begin your search your exploration of this book before you dismiss it as being legend or fanciful. Because usually how it happens is this. Usually the conversation regarding the Bible always takes place on the periphery, always on the external outer ring, always on the details at the way edge or the way corners. So, so the Bible conversation usually goes like this. Well, well how can we know the Bible is true if... The sun, did it really stand still like it says in Joshua? Or, or did two of every kind of animal really get onto a boat like it says in Genesis? Or, or we've got questions like, did Judas hang himself like it says in the Gospels? Or did his guts spill out like it says in Acts? And, and the questions abound. And people usually latch on and begin their conversation on some part that, that seems foreign to them. How come the Bible speaks about women the way that it does? Or, or talks about slavery in the New Testament, slaves obey your masters. And what I want to say is it's often that we just haven't done the homework to read through and study that slavery didn't mean in the New Testament what we think of when we think of slavery. But, but we don't do the homework and that's where we start. It's like you've got this glorious mountain and yet all the conversation, all the fighting always drifts to a molehill on the side. You've got this massive city, but the fight, the battle is always on some playground at the edge of town. And so instead of dealing with, look, it, is the testimony about Jesus true? Is he God? Did he die on a Roman cross? Did he rise from the dead on the third day? The questions and the conversation always gets pigeonholed into, well, how exactly did Judas die? I'm not saying those details aren't important. They are. But I want to save you some time, which is, if Jesus is not who he said he is or who this book says he is, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, don't waste your time with Judas. Just toss the whole book. But if Jesus 
did die on a Roman cross, if he did rise again on the third day, well, then you might give him your life and you might certainly give this book a hearing. So, so what I'm inviting you to do is dive into the deep end, swim there, and then go into the rocky, shallow places and we'll begin to mine through the details. But again, all of that falls outside of the scope of what we want to do today. So, so what I want to do is just briefly give you three reasons why we love the scriptures at Seven Mile Road. Three simple reasons of what we believe about this book, what we hold dear, and why the scriptures have a central place among us. One is that the scriptures reveal truth about God. The scriptures reveal truth about God. Here's what I want you to picture. I want you to picture yourself in a pitch black cave. Just dark beyond dark. So dark you can't see the ground beneath you. You can't see your fingers groping in front of you. And into that darkness, I want you to imagine that you are given a light, a torch. And suddenly, now you can see this flame, and by it, you can now see everything else. Well, what the scriptures, the Bible says, is for us, is just that. That God has not left you in the dark, clueless about truth, about God, about reality, about yourself, about what happens after this life. God has not left you in the dark, but God has given you a light. The Psalms say, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That we see this book, and by this book, and through this book, we see everything else. That in this dark world, God has left an incredible torch, a revelation by which we can see. God has revealed himself in numbers of ways. Psalm 19 says that God has revealed himself in creation, what theologians call general revelation. The idea that when you look at the earth and you consider mountains and streams and hills and valleys and rivers, you learn something about God, about his majesty and glory and splendor and order and engineering. You learn something. The scriptures also tell us that revelation was ultimately given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews says that God once spoke through prophets, but now he has spoken through his Son. That when you look at Jesus, you are discovering and learning and looking at God. But the scriptures also give us not just general revelation or ultimate revelation in Christ. We're given what theologians again call specific revelation, meaning God has given us this book, the scriptures. And in it and through it, he has revealed himself. And what this book tells us is not just that God is, but that God saves. I want you to hear that. Not just that there is a God, but the book tells you what manner of God, namely that God saves. This is not just revelation. We say it is redemptive revelation. Meaning that the whole story from beginning to end is a story of God's gracious, saving work in the world. The whole story is the story of God pursuing us. I need you to hear that. The gospel, that's what we say, the, the story of God who had created the world, man who had sinned, God who had worked to redeem and restore and reconcile and rescue man so that he might consummate all things. That story, the gospel, is not just a part of the scriptures. It is the heart 
of the scriptures. It is the storyline of the scriptures. It is the main thread of the scriptures. It is the point of the scriptures. The gospel is not an afterthought in the scriptures. It's not just a part of the scriptures. It is the very heartbeat of the scriptures. Like if someone asked you, 66 books, thousands of pages, what is this book about? I'm telling you, your summary would clearly and confidently be, it is about Jesus and his gospel. That's what the whole book is about. So, so we love the Bible because it tells us the truth. And, and second, what I want you to hear, that truth that it tells us about is about Jesus and his gospel. Okay, I need you to hear me. The whole Bible is about Jesus and his gospel. Remember in the Seven Mile Road story, the two disciples are walking and, and they ask their questions to Jesus. And on the road, Jesus begins to open the scriptures to them. And what does it say? The verse says, And beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus showed them all the things in the scriptures concerning himself. And then in the passage that Jim read for us, he then shows up while his disciples are sitting together, and he begins to show them with Moses and the Psalms and the prophets everything in the scriptures that were about him. So here's what I need you to hear. This whole book is about Jesus and his gospel. Not just the New Testament, the Old Testament. Not just the New Testament, the Old Testament. The whole book is pointing to or from Jesus. The Old Testament is getting you ready for Jesus, pointing you ahead to Jesus. The New Testament is reflecting back on Jesus. What do I mean? When you read the first 39 books, I need you to see that though Jesus is not mentioned once, he's everywhere. He's on every page. He's the point of every passage. That doesn't mean that we make him appear magically where he doesn't. What I'm saying is that the scriptures have been getting you ready for the Christ. L let me give you some examples. So the Old Testament has stories of different events. Events like creation. Events like the Exodus. So consider the story of the Exodus. In the Exodus, you have a slaved, captive people who are delivered and redeemed and brought out into freedom. Well, what is that getting you ready for? It's getting you ready for the great exodus where Jesus would take an enslaved, captive, sinful people and bring us to deliverance and freedom. Or the new creation, the creation. What's that getting you ready for? The new creation that Jesus would bring about. But, but it's not just the events of the Bible, even the institutions of the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, you've got things like God telling his people, I want you to have a day of atonement. Well, what's the day of atonement? One day, all the people come together, a sacrifice is slain, and all their sins are forgiven. What's that getting you ready for? For the day when the Lamb of God would be slain, so that all our sins might be forgiven. The events, the institutions, but it's not just that. Consider the offices given in the Old Testament. You had three offices, prophet, priest, king. Now prophet, the one who had come with the word of God to give to the people. And what's that getting you ready for? John 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. 
This prophet came not just to bring a word from God, he was the word of God. One little girl when asked said, why is Jesus called the word? She said, it's because Jesus is everything God wanted to say. That's right, right? He is the final prophet, the one who has brought the word of God, prophet. But also priest. What does a priest in the Old Testament do? The priest was the mediator who would stand between God and man and make intercession for the two. What's that getting you ready for? Hebrews says, Jesus is now our high priest. And 1 Timothy says, He is our mediator between God and man. Or king. You have kings anointed by God to rule over God's people. And what is that getting you ready for? For Jesus, who when we talked with Pilate and Jesus, we said is not just king, but king of kings. Every event, every institution, every office, but it's not just those. Consider the prophecies. You have Genesis 3. There's going to come the seed of the woman and he will crush the head of the serpent. Or Isaiah 53. There's coming the suffering servant and by his stripes we will be healed. Or prophecies like there will be a virgin and there will be a birth in Bethlehem and he will be sold out for 30 pieces of silver and he'll ride onto a, on a donkey into Jerusalem. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. This man named Josh McDowell calculated that if you take all the Old Testament prophecies and you told Jesus that he had to hit every single one, the odds of that are sort of like taking the state of Texas, lining it with every inch with silver dollars, three deep, marking an X on one of them, and sending a blind man into Texas and saying, pick that one out. That's the odds. And yet Jesus has hit Every single one. Even on the cross, he's saying the things that he says so that scriptures might be fulfilled. He's born where he is so that scriptures might be fulfilled. The entire Old Testament is getting you ready for pointing you to Jesus. But, but it's not just those. E even the types that are given in the Old Testament, meaning shadows. Things like Jesus. God gives the Old Testament people, build a tabernacle so that I might dwell among you. Well, what happens in the New Testament? What's that getting you ready for? John 1 verse 14 says, The Word became flesh, and guess what the Word is? And tabernacled among us, or dwelt among us. So, so you see God dwelling in the tabernacle, and it's supposed to get you ready and anxious and drooling for the day when God would dwell among us in the flesh. Offices and events and institutions and types and shadows, all of it. But, but I want to tell you, not even just that, but even the biographies, the stories that you read in the Old Testament. Guess which story it's getting you ready for. L like you read the story of Daniel, I'll give you one. A and just consider his story. Here is a man who is unjustly arrested while in prayer. And then brought on trial with sham charges before a judge that does not want to condemn him, but cowardly does so. He's thrown over to his death, and a great stone is rolled over his grave. And then when the stone is rolled back, he who should have been dead stands alive. Tell me who that's getting you ready for. But for the Christ, 
who was arrested unjustly while in prayer and brought up on sham trial and charges and brought before a judge who reluctantly and cowardly sentenced him to death, threw him over to his grave, and then when the stone was rolled back, he who should have been dead stands alive. The whole book, the whole story is getting you ready for Christ. And then when you get to the New Testament, everything is reflecting back on Christ. So that Paul can't talk about anything without bringing you back to Jesus and the cross. So Paul wants to talk about marriage, and yet he can't just say, Husbands, be good and love your wives, or wives, be good and submit to your husbands. What does he say? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So for Paul, he can't even mention marriage without it being connected to Jesus and the cross. Or in 2 Corinthians 8, he wants to tell the Corinthian church, you've got to give some money to the Jerusalem church because they're in a famine. But what does he do? He doesn't pull out slideshows of starving children and work on their guilt. He points them back to the cross. He says, Jesus, though he was rich, for your sake became poor, so that you, though you were poor, might become rich. So that even when he's talking about giving or tithing or marriage or money, all of it, in Paul's mind, is so completely connected and tied to Jesus and his cross. Here's why I'm telling you all this. I need you to hear me. It's not just heady theological stuff to tickle your brain. It is deeply practical. Because if you can get this, it will change how you approach this book. It will change how you read this book. Incredibly practically. For one, it will mean that for once you get that this book is not about what you need to do to get to God, but is the story of what God has done to get to you. That will change how you read it. Because most of us go to this book as though these are legal laws and statutes on what we need to do to get to God. And no wonder it's dry and lifeless and boring. Nobody picks up the law code of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania for leisure reading. No one just sits and reads through it. No, this is not a book of laws on what you need to do to get to God. This, from cover to cover, is the story of what God did to get to you. You are being pursued by a loving God, and this story gives you the account. This book is about what God has done to get to you. It will affect you practically because you'll also realize that this book does not have many heroes. It has one hero. I want you to hear me again. This book does not have many heroes that you are to be like. It has one hero that you are to worship. When you read this book, this book weighs on you and kills you because you read it and you go, well, I've got to be courageous and slay the giants in my life like David. I've got to pray and be faithful like Daniel. I've got to be faithful and full of faith and trust God like Abraham. And the whole story, the whole book becomes about what you have to do. Be like Abraham, be like David, be like Daniel, be like Joseph. Here's what I want you to hear. Have you ever noticed that the Bible seems to almost go out of its way to tarnish all the greats? To tarnish all the saints? We don't know the full story of Enoch. We're not given all the details of Daniel or Caleb. But other than those guys, every one. Like you read the Bible and you go, okay, I'm supposed to be full of faith like Abraham, the father of faith. He's the one. Except what are you going to do about the time 
He basically whored out his wife twice to save his skin. So you go, okay, it's not Abraham, but we've got to be like Noah. When everyone else was condemned, Noah was saved. But what are you going to do about the time he passes out drunk, naked in a vineyard, so that his sons have to cover his shame? So you go, okay, it's not the fathers of faith. What we need is we need a good judge. The time of the judges came. And so you've got guys like Samson, you know, who, who slayed the enemy a thousand with just the carcass of a donkey. Except what are you going to do about the fact that he gets seduced by a prostitute, plucks out his eyes, and now becomes useless? So you go, okay, it's not the fathers of faith, it's not the judges. What we need is a good priest who will intercede for us. And so you've got the very first one, Aaron, who helps lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. But what are you going to do for the fact that he takes off all of Israel's gold and necklaces and fashions it into a golden calf so that people can worship a baby cow rather than Yahweh? So you go, okay, it's not the judges, it's not the fathers of faith, it's not the priests. What we need is a good king. And so the oil drips on David's head. Here's a man, the Bible says, a man after God's own heart. But what are you going to do about the fact that he sees his friend's wife? Not a stranger, his friend's wife. A guy who had actually risked his life for David, bathing on a rooftop, calls her to himself, sleeps with her, impregnates her, tries to cover that through scandal, ends up killing his friend and her husband, and then becomes the kind of father whose house is torn apart like his life was, so that one of his sons rapes one of his daughters, so that another son is sleeping with the women he slept with out on the roof for all of Israel to see. And you go, okay, what we need is not prophet, I mean, not priest or king or judge. We need a good prophet. And then you get Isaiah, and, and we sang it today. I see the Lord seated on the throne, the train of his robe filling the heavens, and holy, 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 except he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I've got a foul and vile and nasty mouth. So, so it's not prophets, it's not priests, it's not king, it's not the fathers of faith, it's not judges. What we need is a good and faithful disciple like Peter, the man who walked on water. Except what do you do about the time that he swore to God, by heaven, I do not know Christ. Three times. What the Bible does is it gives you story after story so that each time you're left going, maybe this is the one, maybe this is the one, and you're left longing for someone else. Because what we need is a better David, a better prophet, a better king, a better priest. I want to read you something that I came across some time back. And I want you to, even if you have to close your eyes, hear the story of the Bible. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and is, whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount but was truly sacrificed for us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice so that we might only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. 
Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed him and sold him and uses his new power rather to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives water in our desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes and saves his friends. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who did not just risk leaving an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave it for the sake of his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible really is about Jesus. That's right. As you read the stories, what every story does is push you ahead to the great and only hero of the scriptures, Jesus Christ. This is not a book telling you who you are to be like. This is a book telling you who came so that you might be saved, so that you might worship him. If all that's true, you'll read this book differently. This is not a book about what you need to do to get to God, but what God has done to you. This is not a book with many heroes, but one. And this is not a book that is primarily, first, about you. It's a book that's primarily, first, about Jesus. You have to hear that. I'm not saying the Bible isn't for you. I'm saying the first question to ask when you turn it open is not, what does this passage, how does it apply to my life? Rather, the first question to ask is, what does this passage teach me about God? And, and how is it pointing me to his saving work, ultimately in the person and work of Jesus Christ? And then you ask, and how does my life get caught up in that? It'll change how you read the Bible. I can't tell you how many years I read this book where every detail was about me. I'd read Noah's story or Jeremiah, and all of it was about whether or not I could date Shiny. That's, that's all the Bible was going to tell me, right? And so the whole scriptures, I'm not making this up. I literally once called Shiny and said, listen, God closed the door of Noah's ark, and I think he's closed the door on our relationship. So till he opens it, I can't open it. I wish somebody preached this to me then. That this book is not primarily what college you need to go to, what job you should take, who you should marry. This book is primarily pointing you to Jesus. How freeing would it be for you to start there and then sort through all the questions of your life. This book, as you come to it, I want you to ask two questions. What does it tell me about God? What does it tell me about me? And ask those in that order. We love the scriptures because they tell us the truth about God and they point us to Jesus and his gospel. And I'll give you one last one very quickly. We love the scriptures because they work on our hearts. When you read the Seven Mile Road story, what happens? Jesus opens the scriptures to them. They begin to see. And what do they say to one another? Did not our hearts burn as he opened the scriptures to us? That's what happens. This is not dead print on a page. 
This book is living and active. A two-edged sword that pierces our soul. Acts 2, Peter preaches this sermon and, and the people say we are cut to the heart. That means this book has a work to do in our hearts. It burns our heart. It cuts our heart. It produces faith in our hearts. Romans 10 says we preach so that by hearing, faith might rise up in your hearts. This is why at the centerpiece of every service, we give 20 or 30 or 40 minutes of our time to what this book has to say. Because we need our hearts cut. We need them to come alive. We need them to burn with God's truth. So you need to ask yourselves, have your hearts grown so hard that God's word seems to bounce off? Or is it cutting? Is it burning? Is it working in your hearts? This book is about Jesus. And it will affect and change our hearts. And if all of that is true, if all of that's true, you get why we want to say right at the start, the scriptures have a central place at Seven Mile Road. We long to be a community that reads, that studies, that engages, that believes, that obeys, that submits, that sings, that prays, that lives the truth of this book. Let's pray.